This episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. The demands of HR and payroll are endless, and that's why Zenium provides a complete solution for both, so that you can focus on what you do best, which is growing your organization. Learn more about Zenium at zeniumhr.com. All right, I'm excited to share this episode with you today. I had Melissa Doman on the show. She's an organizational psychology expert, and we're talking about the stigma of mental health and illness in the workplace and how leaders can help and support their people that are going through difficult times, especially during the pandemic and the great resignation and, and the list goes on. We need to support our people with mental health. Everybody's going through something at some point. And this is a conversation we can't ignore. This is something that we need to help our people with. Us as leaders are going through stuff as well. So it's just a conversation that needs to be had. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Melissa Doman, make sure to connect with her on LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with me there. Reach out to me. I'd love to hear what you think about the show. Have a great week and talk to you next Tuesday. Melissa, it is a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've really been looking forward to having this conversation. You've got a heck of a background. You're an organizational psychologist. You've, you're a former clinical mental health therapist. Like, what, what else have you done that sets us up for this topic about mental health? Give me a little bit of your background so listeners know how smart you are. <laughs> oh, you're so, you're so sweet. Um, gosh, what else? I mean, clearly what contributes to having a good mental health at work conversation is that I do an uncanny Chewbacca impression. Oh, <laughs> we got to hear that now. Uh, well, maybe later, but okay, um, okay. we'll save that for the we'll end. We'll save it for the end. That'll be our closer. Um, but honestly, what I, what I tend to joke about with people, you know, especially cause I have a ton of clients in the tech space is that I went from having a back end job to a front end job. Hmm. Because, you know, when I used to be a clinical mental health therapist, I was the therapist people spoke to in private because they didn't feel they had the permission to talk about it elsewhere. But because I felt like I was treating people in a shrouded kind of broken system, and a lot of those people had a very common theme, they did, none of them felt safe to talk about it at work. Huh. And so I wanted to transition into the workplace to try and make an impact at the source. That is such a good perspective because what you were doing before was very reactive. You're kind of like downstream yes. trying to help yes. the problem that was never yes. like solved at the root, the source, as you said. Well, there's a whole smorgasbord of reasons why people develop mental health issues. And then I'll, I'll answer the rest of your question because I've gone on a total tangent. But there's a whole smorgasbord of reasons why people develop mental health issues, clinical or not, because mental health also includes negative emotions, which people tend to forget. But the thing is that there are so many intervention points that were lost in the workplace because when people were struggling, but they were terrified to talk about it at work, do you really think that made them go on an upward trend or a downward trend? Mm. So by switching into org psych, it's like almost getting ahead of it so that those intervention yeah. points are actually taken advantage of instead of glossed over. To answer your original question, so in addition to 
being a former therapist and now doing org psych, it's been really incredible to do work with the different clients that I've had across industries and around the world. So I never thought that I would be having these conversations with Estee Lauder or Salesforce or <laughs> yeah. Microsoft or Janssen and the fact that they want to do it with me. Yeah. I'm deeply humbled and appreciative that these organizations not only want to talk about it, but they want to do it with me. And uh, I was joking with my publicist the other day because my approach, as you've seen in the book, is I am very no-nonsense. Yeah. I'm very much having this conversation in a realistic, steeped mm -hmm. in the reality in which we are all in sort of way, because anything short of that is just useless. Right. And so oftentimes, as I'm sure you've seen, mental health is automatically and only positioned under wellness at work. But it's so much more than that. It touches accessibility. It touches DEI. It touches mm -hmm. leadership development. It touches learning and development across the organization. This is a skill set that you can't afford not to have. Yeah. And so because of that positioning and because I say shit as a comma, or I'm very honest about the obstacles that you might encounter and how to deal with that and highlighting some of the counterproductive trends that have already come out of the industry. Yeah. And my publicist right. goes, you're like the anti-woo. <laughs> and I said, what does that mean? And she goes, because, you know, mental health and wellness can be seen as very like woo woo. 1000% and... agree with that. Yeah. I hate that. She goes, you're the opposite of that. And I was like, I will take that as a compliment. Thank you. Yeah. I love it because well, you mentioned the book. Um, we didn't mention the title to, to the listeners yet. It's called Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work. Here's Why and How to Do It Really Well. And I think, I mean, just the title alone, you kind of get a sense for what's in the book is like, okay, I'm an HR professional. And I'm now I'm trying to like, I know mental health is something I need to be talking about. Like, how do I bring that into an organization? Well, mm -hmm. the contents of your book is going to help people and this hopefully this discussion as well. So you work with a lot of HR professionals, as we were talking about offline that you've been working some with some of these local Sherm chapters and trying to give them some resources and support. So yeah, love what you're doing. So let's, let's dive into the, the whole discussion here, the contents of your book. I think for years, mental health was something we didn't really talk about at work. There's a stigma attached to it. Why do you think that that was? Was it just a generational thing? Is it we're not comfortable yet or we don't have the resources and tools to have these conversations? What What is it? It's all that and a bag of chips. <laughs> so I totally just dated myself and that's fine. But honestly, it's all those reasons and more. I spent two entire chapters, as you read, talking about it. There are tons of outside of work factors, like for example, the country that you live in, the local culture that you live in, the family that raised you, religion, like all these different things that influence whether or not it is socially permissible to talk about mental health at all, even outside of work. So if you feel you can't talk about it outside of work, the odds of you feeling you can talk about it inside of work are slim to none. And then inside of work factors, there are tons of different things. So let's say, for example, you work for a company that encourages leadership stoicism or a company that engages in something that I call well-being shaming, which is basically making people feel like shit for doing things to strike some modicum of a work-life balance or people that make fun of mental health or co-opt 
mental illness language in ways that people would never co-op, you know, physical illness language to describe how they're feeling. You know, and one of the biggest fears, especially inside of work, is people, rightfully so, are nervous that people who don't understand mental health, they don't understand mental illness, that it means they're incapable of doing their job, which is the furthest thing from the truth. Just because you struggle with mental health or if you have a mental health condition, it doesn't mean you're not a functioning person. It doesn't mean you're not brilliant. It just means that that organ, and people forget the brain is an organ like any other organ in the body. It is a health state, a stress state, and an illness state. And the last time I checked, people who are trying to manage the health of the organ that helps them do the literal job they were hired for, Shouldn't that be rewarded? That is a such a great way of putting it too. It's like you're doing work on the the muscle that is your brain yes. and you should be rewarded for that. Like so spending time on practicing mental health and taking care of the stressors that come your way, that should be celebrated. Yes, the fact that you are aware enough to do that, that you develop the discipline of, you know, using certain strategies or going to therapy or normalizing talking about things you're struggling with. The last time I checked, those are really good self-awareness and emotional intelligence traits that most people would want any worker to have. But people are terrified that they're going to be seen differently, they'll be treated differently, that their career progression will get stalled. And you want to know why? Because for years, and even now, it still happens. Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is like, I think there's like a lot of words that are thrown around in this, like around mental health, because you have mental illness, which is mm-hmm. you know, something that is, you know, kind of st- stuck with you. And then the mental health aspect is something that like you described, you're, you're trying to work on your mental health. And you're, so maybe define those two things, because I think the mental illness part of the equation is maybe, is maybe clouding the, this whole area of mental health. Totally. So I'm going to tell you a quick funny, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Back in the day when my husband and I were living in London, and this is, you know, in the before time, before the whole world shut down, uh, I was doing a keynote, you know, in a room full of hundreds of people back when it was safe to do that. And this guy came up to me afterwards, very nice, you know, middle-aged British guy. And he came up and he said, I loved your talk. I found it so interesting. And then he leaned in and whispered and he goes, I have mental health. And I said, we all do. Are you trying to say you have a mental health condition? He goes, yeah, that. And I said, you don't need to whisper, nothing to be afraid of. So mental health is something that every human being on the planet has. And mammals have it. Animals have it. Some very poor mental health and some maybe very good mental health, right? It's just sort of the state of your being at the moment. Yeah, it's a spectrum. It is your baseline social, emotional, and cognitive functioning. The end. So that is basically the baseline of your brain as you are interacting with your environment, you're aware of yourself, those sorts of things. This can include being in that, you know, nice homeostasis, things are balanced, I'm okay, to lots of peaks where you feel like you're soaring and lots of valleys where you feel like shit. And so people tend to forget that mental health also includes negative emotions that we come pre-programmed with out of the box so we can signpost to ourselves and other people that something is wrong and we need help. So mental illness, however, is a clinically diagnosable condition where you are having a certain number of characteristics happening at the same time for a certain duration of time that are interfering with your cognitive, emotional, or social functioning at different rates. Examples of this, 
generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, addiction, anorexia, narcissistic personality disorder, and 300 other diagnoses that are in the DSM-5. So people will interchange those terms when they are literally not the same thing. Right, because it seems like mental with a mental illness, you you need a specialist. You need a somebody who is an expert in that area, whether it's a therapist or somebody to clinically diagnose and treat that versus mental health. That's not what we're talking about here. It's sort of exercising your brain to make sure that you're, you have good mental health, right? So it's a couple of things. And some of the ideas that I tend to share might seem counterintuitive, but stay with me. So when it comes to mental illness, you know, the global stat is that one in four people has a diagnosed mental illness or will at some point in their life. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, I would bet money that in our lifetime, that number will sadly become one in three or one in two because the whole world has been traumatized in some way. On the other side, when it comes to mental health, you know, it it is an organ like any other organ and you want to keep it in a good health state or try to manage it when it's in a stress state so it doesn't go into an illness state. However, when we're managing our mental health, that doesn't mean that we're always trying to have it be sunshine and rainbows because that is not what it is to be human. What it also means is normalizing, experiencing uncomfortable negative emotions. So you move through them more naturally and then you can move forward. The problem is when people think that managing your mental health means keeping the negative emotions at bay, that's where they get into trouble because they will come out sideways when you don't want it to, towards people you don't want it to. So managing your mental health is also being comfortable with experiencing those negative emotions and realizing that is a healthy form of managing your mental health. It becomes unhealthy when you get stuck in those negative emotional states. Yes, when you're when you're suppressing the way you feel. It was when you're not feeling, you're just like keeping it down because whether it's you don't want to talk about it or don't want to burden people with what you're going through. Right. And I think that's damaging, right? That's where it could become a mental illness later on if you're not dealing with some of those issues, right? So it's kind of a slippery slope. So when it comes to developing a mental health condition, There are lots of different ways that that can happen. It can be genetically inherited, like bipolar or schizophrenia. And some argue that you can also inherit other types of mood disorders if it runs in your family. You could have been traumatized or abused as a child or even as an adult. You could have gone through a very distressing experience. You could have been bullied as a kid or as a teenager or or even as an adult. There are lots of different ways that can usher someone down the path of developing a mental health condition. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Right. So when it comes to managing mental health, like I say to everybody, I say that should be a non-negotiable as much as sleeping, eating, bathing, and breathing. I think people are coming around to that. I certainly hope so. <laughs> I, I was Well, I was thinking pre-pandemic, I didn't really hear a whole lot about mental health, especially in the workplace. But yeah. now I think because, the, you know, we're all going through this thing and, you know, a lot of us are stuck working at home, whether we like it or not, and are isolated, that employers are starting to wake up that there's an issue uh, with mental health. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a giant spotlight on it now because I see it all over the place. Oh, yeah. What, From your perspective, is this a workplace issue or is it just something that, you know, employers are just, it's the right thing to do? I'm sorry that I laughed because 
it gosh how do i say this i, I could i could sense your thought process and why you laugh but that's yeah, no no worries <laughs> <laughs> it's always been a workplace issue but businesses are realizing now that it's a non-negotiable must-have discussion so i was opening up these conversations with companies you know even before the pandemic started and it was gaining steam because people reach an unsustainable point where they're like, if we don't talk about this, I will flip a table. Yep. And that was just like on a global scale. So, but the pandemic hit the go button and made a lot of businesses realize, oh, we, we really need to talk about this. And each company is at their own readiness and willingness to have or not have that conversation. So the data is there. This isn't new information that talking about mental health at work is something that employees want and need to feel cared for, to feel psychologically safe, to feel like they can show up as the imperfect creature that they are, that we all are. And that by being able to talk about that and getting access to resources, it not only makes them feel cared for, but it strengthens rapport amongst employees and between managers and teams and between leadership members. And honestly, it's not only that the data is there, the business case is there, the human case is there, and now the pandemic case is there. It was always important, but because of these generational unwritten rules and sometimes very explicit rules in the world of work, Eventually, a group through the efforts of many that came before me, by the way, this is a, a collective effort of many, where a lot of people basically just got together and said, all right, I'm calling bullshit on the whole thing. This needs to change. It's always been there. But now businesses are realizing that, especially with the Great Resignation, people will vote with their feet and will go work for companies that do care about it. That is a good way to look at it because I think it makes it real at that point. It's like when people are walking out the door because they're like, I'm not, Oh yeah. there's no psychological safety. I'm not cared for, You know, none of the above. Everything that you just mentioned, there's a lot of people not feeling that from their employer right now. And honestly, I'm not even trying to encourage a nanny state, not at all. So there's a popular you know, misconception that the entirety of the conversation is on the shoulders of not only the company and the leaders, also not true. They have the responsibility to make it explicitly clear that you know, mental health is a value that they care about and is actually in practice. And leaders also have the opportunity to do that role modeling because people, no matter how old they are, they look to their leaders for permission on what is kosher or not kosher to mention. Yeah. And so, but then people forget the responsibility of the individual. Leaders in your company are not mind readers. They're not your nanny. They're not there to hold your hand the entire time and make sure you don't feel any discomfort. If they make a safe environment, it is up to you as a chronologically aged adult to take advantage of that and speak up before you yeah. squeak. Yeah. <laughs> Since you went there, I was going to ask this way later on because it's later on in your book, this team stance on mental health. This is what you're really describing is like as a leadership group, as a team, whatever, we're going to basically state how important mental health is for us yes. within our culture. Define it because we're talking about a lot of the ambiguity around this subject. And that's why it needs to be explicitly clear of what the belief is and what that value looks like in practice. Yeah. And granted, that values at 
uh, you know, it changes at a company-wide level, a division level, a team level, because you have lots of little ecosystems within the larger ecosystem. And you got to give it some legs because if you don't define it and make this like amorphous MC Escher painting more concrete for people to understand, it'll never get off the ground. Simple as yeah, that. I, I fully agree with that because it, it sort of like opens up the door, it welcomes the conversation amongst in- individuals and it becomes ingrained in the culture that it's okay to talk about mental health at work because otherwise it's it's scary as shit to even have this conversation because people of course it is. people believe that there's still a stigma attached to it. And there, well, there is. Like, if I talk about my mental health, people are going to think I'm nuts or that I'm weak or that I'm not productive, like all these things. It's scary. Yeah. I have a good old zinger that I always encourage people to use. And I've talked about it in countless keynotes and seminars and podcasts where we're going, thankfully, down the road that mental health at work is on the table in the world of work. It is never going away. And it's going to turn into the businesses that don't talk about it are the odd ones out. I hope you're right about that. Well, listen, I don't care if no one else will say this, but I'll be very honest. We can't guarantee that this is going to be an important thing in every industry. We can't guarantee this is going to be an important thing in every company, but we can try our damnedest to make sure that as many companies and industries care about it as possible. We have to be realistic. And so in this day and age, if anyone is engaging in that nonsense well-being shaming or making people feel weird for talking about their mental health, this is what I would suggest that someone say, talking about and managing my mental health is a healthy adult practice. Can you help me understand why you don't agree? That's it. It's not rude. It's not judgmental. It's not insulting. It's talking about and managing my mental health is a healthy adult practice. Can you help me understand why you don't agree? What are they going to say? I don't, I don't know. I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a rebuttal <laughs> of that, but I'm like, I'm buying what you're selling there. I, I agree. And I, I'm curious. I think you mentioned it in your book a little bit. Do you feel like there's a divide with the generations about this topic in particular? Because I think oh, yeah. of like maybe some experienced generations where they grew up in the workplace, whether they own a business or a leader or whatever, but they're looking at their superiors and they didn't talk about mental health or probably I'm generalizing, of course, but if they grew up with never talking about mental health, how do you think they're going to lead their organization? So that's kind of where I meant with the generational divide. Do you think there that exists? Totally. It's not only you don't know what you don't know, but you also color within the lines because there's a lot of consequences if you don't. So how is it that you can, oh gosh, I mean, if you think about the systems where mental health were first discussed, it usually was at home or with a doctor. And that was it. It wasn't talked about anywhere else because people hid that stuff till death to do them part because that was a private matter. It's a family matter or a medical matter. But then it started gently going into school systems or communities and starting to go, you know, into the media. The very last place is the workplace because of the compartmentalization and partition that we put up between work and life. And so you can't expect people to have this willingness or excitement to talk about it when they've been conditioned for decades that it's either a bunch of bullshit or not something you talk about at work. 
it's really that simple. Yeah. And I, I hope you're right too. Like if most employers are addressing this, then maybe they come up with the team stance and they're doing things to help support mental health. And maybe there will only be a handful of employers who are just not doing it. And then they're the odd ones out. Well, and the thing is that you can't expect, you know, for example, folks born in the fifties to have, and again, these are generalizations based on data. You cannot expect baby boomers, for example, to have the exact same comfort or understanding or access to nomenclature naming to explain how they feel because they just weren't raised with it. So there's a lot of opportunities for reverse mentoring where you know the more recent generations that were given that education at a younger age and are now valuing this in ways that older generations didn't even have it as an option to be able to share a bit of that knowledge and also to find common ground and common understanding so you're not asking the older generations to go too far beyond their comfort level. You you can't ask them to do that. It has to be in steps and stages. So I just had a discussion with someone uh, today about wanting me to come in and and do a session for their company, but it's uh, an OG sort of company where it's like very traditional, like you don't talk about this. It's very old world of work. And I had to say to them, listen, if you position this as a wellness thing, it's not going to get off the ground. You need to position it that this is a must have skill set in the current world of work or your screwed sort of position. They can relate to that. They can relate to skill development. What I'm visualizing that meme that's always floating around in on social media, like that's saying something about mental health. There's like this leaking water bottle or whatever. And then employer slaps like a sticker over the top that says mental health webinar. And I think that's how a lot of of us, you know, a lot of employers are probably looking at it that way. It's like, okay, what can we do to stop the bleeding, so to speak? Yeah. But if you position it the way you're describing it, which is this is a skill and it's actually going to be ingrained in our culture now. Yes. That's that's a much different approach than what I just was making fun of with the meme that I was do, do you remember in the book that I was like, your wellness Wednesday is not yeah. gonna gonna fly? <laughs> because it's 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 the truth. It's not just wellness. It's also yeah. DEI. It's also accessibility. It's so. leadership development. It's L and D. It's 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 everything. So stop positioning it like a specialist skill set and right. as a crucial skill set. You know, I, I feel like if employers really want to make a change, they're going to figure out a way to equip not only the people at the individual level, but supervisors, managers, leaders with tools or conversations, starters, and the skills that you're describing to have the conversation. Because a lot of this is about just where do you even start with the conversation? Sometimes I'll start my one-on-ones with scale one to 10. How are you doing today or this week, whatever? Because based on the number they're going to give me, it invites a conversation like, okay, tell me what's going on. Like, tell me more about that. And I feel like sometimes we just need tools. That's really what it is. Like, are you a, a Matrix fan? Of course. Yeah. Did you see the new one? It was so upsetting and so bad, but I watched it because I was like, oh, Kanu. Um, (laughs) It's not like the Matrix where you can just plug in and know Kung Fu in two minutes. Yeah. It's not like you would be expected to speak Mandarin overnight. So you're not going to learn the skill set overnight. It's a slow burn, but you got to work on it. And so that's why I made the book just freakishly practical and very 
honest and application-based because a lot of things that came before it, in my opinion, were awesome about raising awareness. They were awesome about teaching people what the subject is about and the stigmas that people are afraid of. But where was the piece of education of here's how you have the actual conversation from A to Z. Here's what to do if it goes wrong. Here's what people are afraid of. Here's what to say and what not to say. People want, they want the concrete guardrails because they don't want to bust their butt. And that's why I wrote it the way I did is I wanted people to have a literal playbook. And I think you gave people that, that's for sure. I want to step back a little bit because you talk about factors whether it's internal, external from the org standpoint, but there's these roadblocks and things that come up that trigger poor mental health or our reaction to it. What are some of those things that come up and that you've heard about, whether it's you personally or from employees, the things that come up that are negatively impacting our mental health that maybe we could remove out of, out of our way and, and focus on our mental health? Well, that's a long list. I know, there's, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. That is a giant suitcase. Um, in terms of, you got to look at what you can actually control and influence because to be alive means to encounter stressors of all different kinds, good or bad. We can't escape it. And so when it comes to removing obstacles to those conversations and unintentional stressors, while the outside of work stressors are something that people deal with personally, and we're not going to be able to remove stress, loss, grief, trauma, relationships ending. You know, we're not going to be able to stop any of that. So, the obstacle that employers can remove are the obstacles that are in the way of the conversations. So, for example, there is the explicit way of doing it. And then there's the subtle ways of doing it. So even just knowing that you have the permission and it is okay to talk about these things and that it's encouraged to reach out for resources, that in itself can alleviate a lot of stress and not only saying that it's important, but actually showing it in practice. Because I've lost count the number of companies I've seen who are like, we care about mental health. And they post once a year on World Mental Health Day in October. <laughs> You're laughing because you know it's true. I do know it's true. It's frustrating. Yeah. Well, listen, some of those companies, they also may not know what to do. They don't want to do the wrong thing. They might be like Will Ferrell and Talladega Nights. And they're like, I don't know where to put my hands. Where do I put my hands? I could see, I'm picturing it right now. Where do I put my hands? <laughs> right, right. So you got to be explicitly clear. Not only that it's encouraged and it's important, but the concrete ways that you're actually going to facilitate these conversations. It can't just be it's important. It's going to be here's how we're going to do it. And then when it comes to the more subtle things, it could be so slight, like even re-educating people on some of the language that they use or how they talk about mental health or mental illness, because you never know what people are experiencing in private and so when people are saying things that might be a little insensitive or just downright wrong or offensive about mental health and mental illness, that is a great obstacle to make people feel like if they speak up, they are screwed. Yeah. So when it comes to that sort of thing, you want to educate, not berate. I'm going to say that again. You want to educate, not berate. 
I know that we're in the era of public shaming, but I I really don't think that's the way. Cancel culture. Yeah, I really don't think that's the way when it comes to trying to encourage people to talk about mental health. (laughs) I don't think shaming has place in that conversation. But what I would say is, um, and I gave some of these examples in the book where You know, if you just ran really hard, you wouldn't say, oh my God, I feel like I have COPD. That workout was so hard. Or you wouldn't say, oh, I'm so full from that fried lunch and I I really don't feel well. I feel like I have ulcerative colitis. You wouldn't say that. So don't say that you feel like you have PTSD from that meeting. Don't say that you're completely traumatized at how much that person screwed up that project. You don't have the right to say that. So when you hear people say things like that, it's about finding those educational moments to explain that you don't know what people are experiencing in private you're taking ownership of those things that are not actually accurate in terms of what you're experiencing and that you don't want to unintentionally villainize mental health and mental illness because that's a great way to make people feel completely unsafe to talk about this at work. So those are some of the explicit and kind of more subtle ways that people can remove the obstacles, at least inside of the workplace. And the last thing I would say is human beings are more likely to do things they see other human beings do well. So one of the great ways to to start that wave and by removing those obstacles, especially as a leader, is by participating in the conversation. You can't just say to your team, I'm here guys for you, you know, I'm come to me anytime, but then not participate in that conversation or not disclose a shred about your own struggles. That's not fair. So what's going to make them think they can do it if you're not even going to do it? So true. We Years ago, as any, we did this exercise. I think it was called like a view for my boat or something like that. We got in this giant circle and it was just the weirdest thing where we each had a minute to describe whatever's going on in our life. And it could be not disclosing a lot or you could just say whatever the heck you wanted. I think there's 50 people in the circle Somebody said something, then the next person would go and it would just snowballed into this like, here's everything going wrong in my life or what's going on. And, and it, I mean, a lot of tears and it's just Aww. the amount of empathy that, that people felt in that moment was incredible. Yeah. You had people at all different levels sharing deep things about their life that they otherwise probably wouldn't have the platform at, at the workplace yeah. to do. And that was just yeah. such a fascinating experience. Honestly, with every single delivery I do, with every company I work with, I always, always, always insist that there's not only one or multiple internal sponsors, but they also need to share not only why the topic is important that we're talking about, but why they personally care about it, actually care about it. And they have to share something because I can come in and get this education and and hope that people take it up. But if you don't give your why you give a shit statement, I wish you the best of luck. Mm. This is not just me coming in to educate your community. This is you participating in that conversation. You are not exempt. What's the best I give a shit uh, statement that you've heard somebody make about why, you know, why they care so much and why they're going down this route of, you know, building the team stands for that? Oh, that is such an unfair question. <laughs> there's, so, there's so many like different moments I'm trying to think about. Oh, sure. Oh, this is such an unfair question. I hate to pick, but there's one recently that really comes to mind. This person is the CEO 
of an organization. And when I told this person to prepare their introductory comments for my session, they took it to heart and ran with it. And I I always ask them to send me their intro comments just so I can look and make sure they're saying what will actually be useful, not what they think might be useful, which are not always the same. And the disclosure and the honesty from this person was incredible. They talked about their mother's struggle with undiagnosed mental illness and the impact that it had on their family and on this person and how deeply he wished that mental health was more of a normalized discussion as he was growing up because he wished that his mother could have gotten better help. And so he's also very personally interested in the topic. So he was talking about, you know, sharing with this entire company, by the way, he shared it with like 200 people and said how his mother's mental illness impacted him individually and that he knows he's not alone. There's a lot of other people who have had a variety of experiences around, you know, mental health and mental illness and that he doesn't want people to feel like they can't talk about it. He doesn't want them to feel like that they're alone. Yeah. And it was the most authentic, impressive introductory comments I've ever seen. And then he reached out to me separately, like months later. And he said, I wanted you to know that for our end of year, all hands, that I made sure to mention the progress we've made as a company about mental health. And I mentioned our work with you. And I shared a bit more about, you know, my family story and why mental health conversations are so important. I was like, Oh my God, it's so proud. It was just, it was amazing. That's bringing up a memory of mine's just in being vulnerable and emotional and stuff like that. So I, as a kid, as what you like to probably call a crybaby, I was just, I was just so emotional and I, I don't think I knew how to deal with emotions. Yeah, um, most people don't, even as adults. It was weird because I think people, especially as as I was growing up, people saw it as a weakness, or at least I felt like they probably saw it as a weakness. But it wasn't until I got to the workplace that I became so comfortable Aww. talking about how I feel with other people and like being vulnerable in front that it allowed other people to, to do the same. And I think there's way more connection and, and empathy on both sides as a result of that. So I do not see the emotional part of me as a weakness anymore and i haven't for a very long time but i just i I don't know why that brought back some memories there (laughs) i i understand what you're saying because first of all fun fact the brain is not fully done cooking until you're 26 years old yeah that makes sense right so emotional regulation first of all we as young you know as kids we are literally unable to do that the structures in our brain are just not there and so that's why i often joke with people that like kids are you know tiny drunk humans like running around and vacillating between <laughs> being really happy or uncontrollably crying and they vacillate back and forth you know within moments and it's because as kids we just cannot self regulate those emotions and then If your family or other influences don't teach you the importance or how to regulate emotions, you know, then you end up being an adult that can't really do that. And so I'm happy that you kind of found your space in the workplace to do that. And I actually know other people very similar to you who they didn't get that permission from their family 
but they found it at work. Yeah. I always felt like my family is pretty supportive, but I think with you're talking about like just kids underdeveloped their brain. Like I've, I don't know, this is probably when I was 10, 11, 12, and I probably didn't have it under control until probably 12, 13 years old. And then there was a period where, I don't know, maybe I wasn't focused on my emotions. It wasn't until I got to the workplace though, where people were openly talking about it. And I was like, oh, this is, this is cool. <laughs> That's great. I'm so happy to hear that you had that experience. And you know, there's um, there's someone that I interviewed for the book where he, he had that same experience where even now his family doesn't know that he has clinical depression, wow. but that he was able to share with his boss. And keep in mind, this was like in the 90s hmm. where he shared with his boss. And this is the 90s in the UK. And he was able to share with his boss about his struggles. And they they were incredibly supportive. That That was not something you did back in the day. No, not at all. And that's why I, I love everything about your book. I mean, it gives people tools and equips people with what they need as an individual or supervisor leader to start having these conversations. So I, I want to encourage people to go get the book. What do you want to like leave people with as we kind of wrap up this conversation? Like put a bow on this for us. Like if there's anything you can leave people with, uh, whether to take action or just a, a parting thought, I'd love to hear it. I can give you both if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So let's start with a parting call to action. For anybody who's listening to this episode, I am deeply appreciative that you are. I'm so happy that you're interested to learn more and maybe incorporate this into your work. Please, please act on this education because education without action is a big fat waste of time. Whether that is reading the book or whether that's reading more articles or whether it's trying to get you know, mental health events in your company, or even just supporting a colleague that you can tell has been struggling for quite some time. Please act on something because it is deeply urgent and you never know the difference that you could make either in your own life or someone else's life. So please take action, whatever that looks like for you. The other thing I would say is given the burgeoning dumpster fire that has been 2020, 2021, and, and some parts of 2022. It's still going. Yeah. Don't let anyone make you feel like mental health at work is a pointless discussion because they're wrong. They are wrong. So well said, Melissa. Well, Melissa, this has been such a great conversation. It jumped all over the place because I was so passionate about uh, this. And I just felt like I had to insert some commentary every once in a while. But sure. I so appreciate you coming on. Your book is called, Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work, Here's Why, and How to Do It Really Well. Where can people find this book and more, learn more about you if they want to follow you, connect with you? Where, where's the best places? Absolutely. So you can go to my website, which is melissadoman.com. There is a link there for tons of different online retailers where you can find the book, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, lots of different places. So there's lots of links on my website on the book tab, or you can go straight to Amazon, you know, whatever's your bliss. And then in terms of getting in touch, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, Melissa Doman LLC. And then on Instagram, 
I'm at The Wandering Mel because <laughs> I love to travel. But please feel free if there's anything I can do to help your organization to realistically open this uh, conversation, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm trying to get this message into as many companies as humanly possible. And I look forward to hearing from you all. My guest today has been Melissa Doman. Melissa, thank you so much for being part of the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.